Well, good morning, church. There we go. I was assured that there would be feedback, so I'm glad we didn't disappoint already. Um, as uh, Pastor Craig mentioned, my name is Philip Pinkney, and I am, I am really honored and really grateful to be here. Um, Pastor Craig has been a, he's one of those brothers that you, you don't know long, but you feel like you've known him forever, right? We met one time in kind of a frantic pace. Um, as some of you may be familiar, <laughs> Craig is a, an excited guy. Um, and we've been great friends. He's knitted our hearts together really closely. So I'm, I'm really honored to, to stand in the Lord's house with God's people, even in his pulpit today. So um, I do want to get to the word. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 through 5. And I want to just walk through these verses together. I took the occasion to listen to the sermon that was given last year at this time. Um, and Pastor Craig referenced a, just a verbal processing, walking through Scripture, wrestling with the reality the first Sunday after the, the murders at Emmanuel AME, and just wanted to process that with you as he walked through Deuteronomy 16, I believe, um, talking about the Lord's justice. So on the eve or the anniversary of that year of what happened What's happened since? I'm going to walk through these verses, which I think may be helpful for us. So why don't we stand as we read God's word together? 2 Corinthians 10, verses 3 through 5, and it reads, this is the word of the Lord. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. And take every thought captive to obey Christ. You may be seated. I want to share in a moment of transparency some of my own struggles um, that I've walked through over the last year. Some of the own, my own frustrations and my celebrations and my joys. Um, because this Sunday, like last year, is a, it's a Sunday of mixed emotions for me. It is uh, my first Father's Day. So we have a one-year-old, almost one-year-old son, our first son. So this is the very first time I'm actually included in Father's Day discussion. So on one hand, it's exciting and and joyful. Uh, My wife has done a great job of making this Father's Day already pretty special. Um, But there's this tether attached to my heart that prevents it from really, really experiencing full and unreleased joy. And I want to walk through that this morning. So let's pray. Father... God, we have heard the words of men all week. We have been inundated with the opinions and the thoughts and the commentary. But God, we need to hear from you today. I pray that you would speak to us, that you would use me in some small way to encourage your people, to exhort and admonish your people through the power of your word. God, keep me free from error. Help me be clear and winsome and encouraging, Father, through the power of the gospel. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So that tether that prevents my heart from being fully released to joy is the reality of the sorrow and the pain and the brokenness that I find myself reminded of this week. 
I spent the last several days, it feels like, doing events and leading conversations and talks around the one year later. What's happened one year later? One year since a man walked into a church not unlike this and decided that he would enact hate and violence in order to start a war. And it's been, surprisingly, 12 months since then. There's been much progress, much joy, much conversation. But this week has been a hard week for me um, because I was once again confronted with the overwhelming brokenness of our world. And in verse 3 it says, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. And this week I was reminded of how we walk in the flesh. We are human. Amen. And we can forget that. I know I can forget that. I can forget that I'm human. And we were reminded of our humanity when we are attacked and we feel vulnerable, when we feel pain, when we feel sorrow. We are reminded of our weakness. I remember um, standing in front of Emmanuel a couple of days after the, the murders at the church, and I was doing, had the opportunity to do some preaching, and I was just open-air preaching along with some brothers and friends of mine to those who were standing in front of uh, the church, and I just remember feeling overwhelmed. There were so many people hurting. There were so many people broken. I remember a few days later after the KKK from around the country descended upon Charleston and Somerville and the new Black Panther Party descended upon downtown Charleston, I got a call one night that said, hey, there's a protest happening downtown. You should probably go. It was around 9 or 10 o'clock that night. And uh, I'd been alerted by another pastor friend of mine that the new Black Panther Party had come down in response to the KKK coming down. And they were marching up and down Calhoun Street angry, angry, shouting and yelling and calling names. And I came down there because there were still mourners in front of the church, as you remember. There were still dozens of people, even in the middle of the night, mourning and weeping in front of the church. And this band of angry men and women were yelling at the mourners, yelling at those praying, venting their anger. And I remember going down there and I I'll never forget standing in between these two groups. Uh, I, I kind of barricaded myself along the barrier that was set up in front of the church so, so as to protect the mourners from the onslaught of the angry protesters. And as they began to attack me and the brothers that I was with and a yell at the mourners, I remember thinking, what kind of answer can we give to people who feel so hurt? What kind of answer can I give to people who feel so violated? And I remember feeling overwhelmed with the task that I felt like God had called me to. Because we look at the rioting that happened in Baltimore, we look at the rioting that happened around this country, and we say, oh, that's wrong. That's an easy judgment call to make, but understanding why is harder. It makes you enter into the pain of other people. And that week, and that days, and these past few days, I've reminded that we are human. We are flesh. For I've often said that rioting is the voice of the powerless. Those without a voice, that's how they get the attention of those with power. It's because sometimes the only way those who have power hear you is on top of a burning vehicle and rioting in looted streets. And so I saw not just the anger, but I saw the pain of people who felt like they could not have a place at the table, who felt like they didn't have a voice. And I saw the pain of the mourners 
who were innocent of any violence, who were innocent of any hatred, and yet were being the object of their attack. And I was reminded that we walk according to the flesh. And that vigor and strength and zeal that I had a few days ago was starting to wane. And I began to say, Lord, what am I doing here? What am I doing here? I felt like the prophet Habakkuk. You don't have to turn there, but I'm going to read Habakkuk 1, verses 2 through 4. It says, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. And church, if I were to be honest with you, I would say that that was my story in those moments. Early that morning, I had proclaiming Thessalonians 4 and Romans chapter 3 about the gospel of the good news of Jesus Christ, but all of a sudden those words felt powerless to me. So I looked at the pain and the hurting, and I was reminded that we walk according to the flesh, and I had to be reminded that we wage war not according to the flesh, for I felt that same anger. I felt that same injustice. I felt that same violation, and I looked at the apathy and the passivity of my brothers and sisters from other denominations and other walks of life and other cultures, and it was frustrating. And I don't know about you, but I didn't grow up a a Christian. God powerfully saved me, and had not been for the grace of God, I would have been one of those protesters aiming to destroy the city, aiming to respond in kind. And the Lord had to remind me that although we walk according to the flesh, we don't wage war according to the flesh. But we do wage war. Do we think of ourselves, Christians, as a wartime group? That has been a question I've been wrestling with for the last several months Um, and in different ways over the last couple of years. um, I serve in the Marine Corps. Um, I have the great honor of serving in the Marine Corps. Both of my brothers have served in the Marine Corps. Most of my family have served in the military in some way. And so I'm familiar with what war looks like. I'm familiar with the effects of it. And I'm also familiar with the training and preparation of war. And as I look at our church, I have to ask the question, do we realize that although we don't wage war with weapons of the flesh, we do wage war? For I fear that in our abundance, I fear that in our resources, I fear that in our protection and insulation, We've forgotten that we are at war. And it's not with a people group. It's not with an ideology. It's not with a political party. It's with the strongholds of Satan himself. Andy Crouch, the uh, ex-executive director of uh, Christianity Today, had an opportunity to, to have some conversations with him. And he talks about the pain of trauma. What we experienced June 17th last year was trauma, an instantaneous and immediate blunt force trauma to the soul of this city. And he cautioned this group that he was speaking to against anesthetizing themselves against that trauma, 
Because if you have enough resources and privilege and access, you can numb yourself to the pain of trauma. You can hide from its effects and never deal with its causes. It's like the person with cancer slowly dying but taking Tylenol for the pain. And I fear that that's what we as a church have become in many ways. We have forgotten that we are at war because we have hidden from the effects of it. We have built walls around our hearts and walls around our families and walls around our children so as to remind them that we're safe and we're okay with the unintended consequence of forgetting that we are in a hostile territory in a foreign land against an enemy that does not sleep, does not surrender, and will not give up until that final day. And so the weapons of our warfare, because we are in a warfare of not flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. And that was life for me, church. That was life itself for me. So I looked at the sweeping brokenness in Charleston. You see, Emmanuel 9 was not the first time gruesome acts have been committed in Charleston. It's not even the first time that that church has been violated with violence. That church's history is one of suffering and martyrdom, even. And so Emmanuel had the dual effect of shocking the nation into saying this still exists, but also had the other unintended consequence of shocking those who were shocked. <laughs> there was a contingent of my, my friends and, and compatriots and brothers and sisters who were shocked that people were shocked. You see, they don't have the resources and the access to hide themselves and insulate themselves from war, so they feel its effects. And so for those of us like myself who does, who's not engaged in the hand-to-hand combat every day of spiritual warfare, we can forget its presence. But those people who are on the ground, those who see and live in proximity to the brokenness of our city, they were shocked that we were shocked. For they've been saying, look, this has been happening all along. Look, there's still anger. Look, there's still institutional bias. Look, there's still sin rampant in the church and in our institutions of government. And the rest of us have insulated and distanced ourselves from that reality. So we were shocked. We thought it inconceivable that a man could walk into a church and murder people at a Bible study when there's dozens of examples in this city of it happening before. There's dozens of examples in this nation of it happening before, but yet we forgot. We've forgotten. We've forgotten our history. For you see, black church history is our history. We have a new family in Jesus Christ that knits us to those who claim the name of Jesus Christ tighter and more intimately than those who look like us, those who believe like us, those who vote like us. So my heart is, my heart is heavy. For I realize that we're at war And I feel at times that the weapons that we have to fight with are insufficient. Have you ever felt that, Christian? You've looked at your marriages, maybe. You've looked at your children. You look at your circumstances. And you hear the counsel of other Christians, oh, if you just pray. Oh, if you just read. Oh, if you just fast. Oh, if you just be involved in community group. And you look at those answers and you say, that's not enough. I felt that way too, believer. I felt that way too, brothers and sisters. I looked at the pain and the brokenness 
of our city. I looked at the pain and the anger that I felt in my own heart, and I felt that the gospel wasn't enough. I felt like the weapons of our warfare don't have the power to destroy the strongholds, and I felt the call to action, the call to doing it on my own, to doing it my way, to take a more direct path. And I had to be reminded of the power of the gospel, the power of the good news of Jesus Christ. Don't we all need to be reminded? I have a, lots of friends who both who are part of the church and some who are not, and they always struggle with church, right? There's a lot of people who, they're religious, but they're not, they don't go to church, right? They're not Christian. They're just religious, right? They're just, you know, people who believe in God in some form or fashion, but don't feel the need to be a part of a church. And so they always ask me, like, why, they always get the question that, why, why do I have church every Sunday? Why do I have to go to church? I can just read a book. I can listen to a podcast. Why be involved in church? And the answers to that question are many, but specifically because we need to be reminded of the gospel. Our hearts are prone to wonder. We are, we are built to build idols in our hearts. We are built to dethrone God day by day, moment by moment. We are built to see our reality is bigger than our hope. And so we need to be reminded that the weapons of our warfare are not of flesh, but they do have divine power to destroy strongholds. They do have the power to change the hearts of apathetic people. They do have the power to change institutions that have long excluded certain people. They do have the power to change the church from a peacetime cruise ship to a wartime battleship. And you have the command in verse 5 that says, we destroy arguments in every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. That's an interesting phrase. We destroy arguments in every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. It seems contradictory to me, or a little, at least a little confusing, that God would talk about warfare and weapons in one sentence and then talk about opinions and knowledge in another. My experience in the Marine Corps, there's not a, we are not known for being an intelligent group of people, right? Just being honest. We are known to be war fighters, right? Marines, are, they have one purpose on this earth. That is to wage war. And so in that concept of waging war, God then begins talking about knowledge and lofty opinions. And a simple, simple preacher like me found that hard to understand. What does knowledge and opinions have to do with warfare? Let me think I can make a connection for you. Genesis 1, 26, the whole, the whole creation narrative says that we were created in the image of God. Now, I don't have a high enough view of God, apparently, because that verse should knock us back. That God created men in his likeness. This immortal, invisible, eternal, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-loving, all-consuming God implanted his image in men. And as I begin to make that connection, I begin to see that maybe that's instructive for us because I believe that's an opinion that we have lost. That's an argument 
that has gone silent in the discourse between reconciliation because reconciliation is often talked about as a social issue. We need to redress the wrongs that were committed. We need to atone for the sins that were committed. We need to do justice and do charity and do good, and all of that's biblical and true. But there is a deeper, more foundational reality and opinion that we have lost. This knowledge that we were made in the image of God. We destroy arguments in every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, the knowing of God. How do we know God who we have not seen? Two primary ways, in his creation and in his word, the Logos, Jesus Christ. We foundationally haven't responded well to the call of Christ in this world because we have forgotten that you and I bear equally the image of God. Think about that for a second. You and I, in every culture on this planet, bears equally the image of God. So why do we respond like Deuteronomy 16? Why do we care about the poor? Because it's good to do, yes, but because the poor bear the image of God. And so we who are people consumed with God's glory and the protection and the building of his kingdom, we seek to glorify God and make his glory known by preserving those who bear his image, by preserving those who are made in his likeness, and those who don't protect that image, those who don't sacrifice for that image, go against the very knowledge of God. For you see, God has not given all that we need for life and godliness to the white church or to the black church. God hasn't poured out all the spiritual gifts and power necessary so that we can live independent of one another. God has made his body to be needful of one another. I, uh, I say jokingly, but seriously at the same time, that it would be convenient if God gave black people and white people all they needed to do life together uh, just among each other, right? If he gave the black church, here's every spiritual gift you need with just you, and gave the white church, you, here's every spiritual gift you need, and we could live lives separate and fully content and fully glorifying God, but that's not how he made us. That's just not true. Because we're image bearers equally, God has given us the godliness inside of him. He has given us grace that we need from each other. I firmly believe that there is and has been sin in our lives, struggles in our marriage, deficiency in our churches, because the people who would have been grace, the people who God meant to dispense grace through to solve those problems, come over that sin, just didn't look like us. And so we missed them. We missed the gifts of God because they were unfamiliar. It came in a packaging that we weren't familiar with. It came in a dialect that we weren't comfortable with. It came dressed in a way that offended our sensibilities. And we have raised against the knowledge of God and so denied the Imago Dei. We have denied the image of God in other people. But, but 
we can take every thought captive to obey Christ. God in his infinite mercy doesn't just leave us with empty commands meant to burden us, no. He gives us the power to fulfill those. He gives us mighty weapons to destroy those strongholds and bring every thought captive to obey Christ. Church, that is a beautiful promise. Rewind the tape of your minds from just the last three days. Run through your mind right now every thought that's come through your mind over the last two to three days. And ask yourself, if we played a highlight reel of those thoughts in front of the church today, would you even be allowed back in? (laughs) Surely not. Such is the wickedness in all of our hearts. Such is the brokenness even among God's people that our thoughts and our opinions, they wander far from our identity. And yet God promises us that he will, through Christ, bring every thought captive. And it's instructive that he used Christ and not Jesus because Jesus Christ isn't his first and last name. Like, it's not Mr. Jesus Christ, right? Christ is a title, the Greek version of Messiah, the promised one, the anointed one. He used that title to remind us that there is one who is coming, who has come and will come again. That now in this present age, he has given us the power, First Peter says, all that we need for life and godliness are in Jesus Christ. He's given us this power to take every thought captive. He's given us the weapons of our warfare that are mighty to destroy the strongholds. And he is the Messiah, the Christ, who will come again. So you see, we may not actually solve every problem. The racism and the apathy and the institutional bias in this country may never be fixed. You know, it's a a hard call to do that which you know you may not be promised victory. There's a great quote that says, if you knew you would not fail, what would you attempt? If you knew you would not fail, what would you attempt? And it's supposed to inspire confidence that, well, if anything is possible, I would do this. But the gospel is strange in such that he doesn't promise victory in this life. The poor will always be with you in poverty. We have been given new minds in Jesus Christ. Take every thought captive. There is a sense in which we may not actually taste the full consummate victory in this world, but we've been called to fight nonetheless, and that is a hard call. There is a a great tradition in the Marine Corps of remembering every battle, remembering every, every important general and leader, those who gave all, in the most heroic, heroic circumstances, often are those who the numbers and the odds were against them, and there was no chance of victory, but there was one man who just against all odds ran back and forth to save those who were in harm's way, to capture those who were running amok, to slay those who were his enemies. And in that immense courage, we celebrate because victory was not guaranteed. And such is the call for the Christian life. Such is our call today. We may not actually get our heart's wishes fulfilled. I may not see the full reconciliation of the church in this life. I may not see institutional bias and prejudice eradicated in this life. But God calls us to be salt in this world. 
And that's instructive because in ancient times, there was no refrigeration. So you would spread salt on meat to let it last a little bit longer. And it did not stop decay. Just slowed it down. Just slowed it down. And in many ways, we are to be that force. If the world is going to go to hell, it will go to hell over our bodies, kicking and screaming. It will, it will have to claw its way over the bodies of the martyrs. It will have to listen to the voice of the enemy over the cries of God's people. Because we've been given a call and a promise that we have divine power through the gospel to destroy strongholds. And it may not be as fast or as expedient or as direct as I would like it to be. You see, prayer seems like a foolish weapon. Song seems like a foolish weapon. Worship seems like a foolish weapon. But nevertheless, that is all we have. And it's enough. The gospel is enough. The good news that Jesus Christ saves sinners, it's enough. And it's not just an esoteric, metaphysical knowledge of this eschatological truth. You're like, <laughs> run that back. But no, it has a very real and present reality. The gospel impacts our neighbors today. Amen? It impacts where we send our kids to school today. It, it impacts where we live today. Think about the missionaries even this morning living in Cambodia, having their child in Cambodia. Everything in the world would say, don't do it. Everything in the world would say, don't go. It's not safe. Because we are so used to building those walls, insulating ourselves from the realities of warfare, insulating ourselves from the trauma of this world, but only in sharing in life with Muslims and atheists, and deists, and Buddhists, can the gospel clearly be seen, displayed, and demonstrated. So they go. And they're not promised safety. One of my great mentors in life is an army chaplain, and he sent and prayed for many men along their ways to war in his decades of service. And one thing that he stopped praying for was safety. Mothers and fathers would come to them and said, my son just got commissioned in the army. My son just got enlisted in the army. He's going off to war. Will you pray for his safe return? And he would always say no. It's one of the benefits of being a 60-year-old chaplain. You just, you just don't care anymore. Right? You don't care. He would never pray for safety. What he would pray for is that whether through life or death, he would remain faithful. She would remain faithful to the end that whether they are reading their obituary or celebrating their return, the gospel would be on clear display. Christian, that is a wartime Christianity. That is the reality that we have insulated ourselves from, but that God calls us to. So I want to read, as I close, Habakkuk chapter 3. Habakkuk is a great book because it's really just a complaint and and response book. This prophet just complains to God, and God responds. responds. It's a really honest book. And after Habakkuk's initial complaint that I read earlier, he ends 
this book of mourning and grief and frustration and anger with worship. And he says, though the fig tree should not blossom, in Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 17, nor fruit be on the vines, though the produce of the olive fail and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and though there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. May that be our prayer today. That although we may not see the full consummation of our heart's desire, though we may experience trauma and calamity, In this life, and though we may not even be granted success, yet let us rejoice in the Lord and take joy in the God of our salvation. Let's pray. Father, God, I repent openly and publicly for not using well the weapons of our warfare, for seeing the weapons of righteousness as inadequate for seeing prayer, worship, community, evangelism as foolish tools to destroy the strongholds in the hearts of men and women. God, I repent. And I would ask us all, Father God, that you would give us the strength to bear the weight of warfare, to bear the reality that you have called us to a dying world. God, help us to rejoice in the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah, the one who is, was, and will forever be. Let us rejoice in our salvation. And let us rejoice in that great day with the multitudes of your people from around the world, God, from every tribe, nation, and tongue, And let us work for that reality in this life. Give us that strength. Give us that clarity. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.